slow down and try to get on your deliberate side of your brain whenever you can when you're making decisions and good things tend to happen. Now, this is Chip Aaron Child, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing drink beer outside with additional support from interwest insurance the goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches oh hey thanks for tuning back in yeah i bet you're a little bit confused it's not the first or the 15th of the month that's right this is a bonus episode Dropping it like it's hot. Just think of it as a little early holiday cheer for you. I hope everybody's enjoying the podcast season thus far this year. Uh, it's been super fun to, to put together some of these great interviews. Maybe you've heard in the last couple episodes we have a little snow saw giveaway going on right now. The drawing will take place uh, first part of January. We're giving away one of Primo Snow and Avalanche's El Profesional Snow Saws. It's a great lightweight snow saw that's hand sharpened in Leavenworth, Washington by Matt Promomo. Um, so all you have to do to enter to win that snow saw is shoot us an email with a screenshot of your subscription to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Whatever platform you, you listen to podcasts on, just snap a screenshot and shoot it on over to the Avalanche Hour podcast at gmail.com. You'll be entered to win the El Profesional Snow Saw. If you can't wait or if you think you are not a very lucky person, then you can go just purchase one of these snow saws from primosnowandavalanche.com and you can use the code TAH10 for 10% off your snow saw. So go check out those great snow saws, they're lightweight and they cut straight. Maybe you're searching for a little gift for your favorite skin track setter or backcountry partner. Well, you're in luck because you can go to www.theavalanchehour.com and while you're there, you can cruise some of the great bios from past guests on the show. You can find links to past episodes and you can also go to the store and find some great gifts. You could find a hat, a trucker hat, sweet trucker hat, says the Avalanche Hour, or a volley strap, or even a can koozie. Um, great stocking stuffers for all your friends and family. And it helps to support the show. If you're looking for another way to support the show, uh, we're trying something new this season with some affiliate marketing. So if you go to the show notes, you're going to find a bunch of links in the show notes. And if you click on those links, you're going to save money at places you'd probably already shop. And you're also going to uh, allow us to get a little commission from those, those companies. So it's kind of like a banner on a website that you would click through. You know, that's advertising. And, and so we're just kind of doing the same thing with products that, that I think are somewhat relevant. So right now uh, there's codes on there for some social CBD products, great topicals and gummies and stuff like that. 
There's also a code on there for Hagen Ski Mountaineering. I'm rocking the Core 12 binding this year um, from Hagen. And, and if you click through those links, you're going to uh, get a discount and you're going to kick some cash our way. So appreciate you very much. There's also one more discount on there, uh, and that's for 10% off your next pair of Wonder Alpine skis. Um, so check all that out and help us out while you're at it. Well, we'll just dive right into the interview here. Um, I sit down with my good friend Chip Aaronchild and we chat about a lot of stuff having to do with risk um, and Chip recounts some of his uh, memories of, of skiing at Ruby Mountain Heli Ski, um, which is where I met him. And we just have a really great conversation and I think there's some awesome parallels between what what goes on in Chip's professional world um, with with how we can manage risk in the backcountry. So I know you'll enjoy this one. Here we go with Chip Aaron Child. All right, welcome to the show, Chip. Thanks for making the time. It's great to finally get you on the show. Well, I'm glad to be here, Caleb. It's great to uh, see you through that uh, new technology we're using here today. Yeah, absolutely. Chip and I met maybe, I don't know, seven years ago or so at, at Ruby Mountain Heli Ski. Chip's been a, a long time dedicated guest at Ruby Mountain Heli. And over the years, we've gotten to know each other a little bit better. Um, and I'm, I'm stoked to have you on the show today, Chip. Maybe you could introduce yourself and give a bit of background where you grew up and, and, and your line of work and some of your personal interests as well. Hey, Chip Aaron Child, and let's see, Caleb, I, I grew up in Redding, California, and we've been skiing my whole life, something we enjoy doing, something we enjoy doing with our family, and look forward to doing a lot this winter. I currently have been an insurance broker, commercial insurance broker and risk manager for 21 years, and you know, one of the ways I keep pestering you as we met through the Rubies is I've always been impressed from the first trip out to the Rubies, which was 13 or 14 years ago, I guess about watching what the guides do and how that operation is ran and, and managing risk out in that environment and then watching how it's incorporated into the, the daily actions of the guides and the people working there and their behaviors and, and how they've been um, modeled to them, I assume, or watched over the years and then transferred as the guides change year after year and you see new faces come on board. Yet the one thing I notice is consistent is that the behaviors to mitigate risk in that operation are consistent and you see it done. You don't see skips being taken. And I'm always fascinated by how that behavior is modeled and learned to a new generation of guides and that they're able to sustain an environment that really for the guest, if you're not paying attention, seems seamless in what's going on yet. You know, there's a lot going on under the water there. Right. So as a guest, what do you, what do you see as maybe the top three, biggest risk factors in, in being a participant in backcountry skiing out of a helicopter or a cat, snow cat? I'll tell you one of the first ones that, that stuck with me more than anything else, and I think of it still to this day, goes way back to when uh, they used to use a facility called Red's Ranch. And when it was snowing, at whatever time it was, whether it was 5.30 or 6 in the morning, that a, someone was out shoveling all the walkways to eliminate a guest slip, slipping or falling just around the facility from maybe if they're not used to snow or 
are being thinking about that. And even to this day, the, just around the lodge itself, watching how much detail goes into eliminating slips and trip hazards that I think are, you know, this a common thing that you wouldn't think about too often. Yet there's that unspoken. You see that in any time there's a dead time, you see someone picking it up and making sure walkways are cleared off and things are not, uh, our hazards are eliminated. So that that's one that I think goes under the radar screen that you don't pay attention to. I think the other one would be just the movement of people and the timing and what it takes to keep the helicopter in sync with the various groups and the timing and logistics associated with it. And if you don't notice the interaction between the guides and what they're talking about and what they're thinking about and, you know, what the weather's doing, what the wind is doing, what the aspect of the slope is doing and the snow conditions and how are we going to move to a new area and what are we going to do? It's that part just intrigues me to know when to watch that. And that's probably my favorite part about being on those trips is watching the operation in action. And, and then we get to go skiing, which is great, but it's really watching everyone work to make it seem seamless. Mm. <clears throat> well, it certainly is oftentimes a matter of the devil being in the details, so to speak, right? Like there are some kind of, I'd call them big billboard objective hazards out there, right? Cliff bands, avalanche hazard, the fact that you're flying in a helicopter all have inherent risks. And I'm always fascinated by accidents often happen by a series of small details, right? It's not necessarily always the big hazards that can get you, but sometimes we find ourselves, it's very easy to be um, blinded by those big billboard objective hazards and not notice the slip and fall, right? Um, well, I agree a hundred percent. What in the correlation to our work is very, very rarely, you know, people don't have people go stand in an electric, uh, in a, with a, you know, two cords of an electrical, um, cord in a puddle of water. You know, we don't, we don't put people into unsafe conditions mm. in the workplace, but it's the behaviors of people that they bring from home or, they learn somewhere else and that, that, that get expressed in the workplace. And it's often when you lose sight of those small details that you revert back to bad habits. And then that's when something leads to something horrible happening. Take the helicopter, for example. Your first time around the helicopter, you're just scared to death. You know, you're just, the blades are going and, you, and you've heard the instructional and you know what to do. But it only takes a couple passes in that helicopter to be where you just get it's background noise and it's just becomes nothing that you really think about because it, it seems like nothing could ever happen. It just, it flies, it works, it lands, you come down, you think nothing could ever happen yet. There's a, a lot of things going on there that could go sideways. If, if, if you don't pay attention to the details from kicking the pilot's seat to what he has to worry about, to where we position ourselves, or if a guide or if a guest wants to try and help the guide load the basket when they don't need the help, uh, getting in and out of it. There's so many things, but I, I think you forget about it as a guest when you're there because it, you just never see anything happen to it. So you lose consciousness that you got to maybe pay as much attention as you should. Right. The risk sort of becomes normalized over time. Yep. Same with the snow, right? You you have such a trust that there's no way anything could happen on the snow or these snow conditions that you just you don't, you don't, you, for, you tend to minimize it. And I think that's when you lead yourself into getting in trouble mm. because 
you know, our actions, our behaviors, and our consequences, I call them the ABCs when we do these trainings, right? Our behaviors don't change um, unless the consequences are so great. And on that experience out in the Rubies, for example, or any ski trip, right, you're doing everything you can to minimize any consequences other than the consequence of having a good time. And so your behavior is always going to continue to stay consistent and it won't change until something happens. And, um, and that's when we start to fall asleep. And that's what we see in our field, right? With workplace injuries and things that happen, it's when people start to get complacent around the small things that eventually snap up and bite you. Chip, talk a little bit more about what you do and what, what goes on at InterWest. Um, just in terms of like of this risk management within organizations and some of the trainings that you you provide for these organizations. Yeah, we're we're a commercial insurance brokerage firm, but we have a big specialization in um, risk management and helping our clients be able to identify what they can do to keep more money in their in their business by not having claims. Right, so it's a claim reduction strategy, and so we're really good using a behavior-based, and that's a generic term, but a program where we're trying to take a look at isolating those behaviors in the workplace or habits in the workplace that uh, for any given business that their employees were going to bring to it, and then implementing strategies to bring awareness around those behaviors, how, how to do more of what you want to do and less of what you don't want to do, and then really drive that process inside a company so it gets done and it becomes sticky and it stays. And we use a series of forms and checklists and a lot of one-on-one coaching and working with uh, supervisors at a business to become better communicators, to start using some proven techniques around, I'm just going to call it behavioral economics and whether it's neuroscience, but there's ways to get people to engage their brain that gets kind of shut off when you're just running on automatic mode. And we're really good at building programs to identify the habits that are leading to accidents and reverse those things and, and then documenting it. So we're, we're kind of on, I don't want to say we're kind of the cutting edge, but boy, if you read any type of books these days, right, you're getting the combination of economic, behavioral economics, neuroscience, and psychology, and they're all bleeding together to say, how do we communicate better? How do we slow down? And how do we get deliberate in our actions to prevent things from happening? And that's really what our focus is. At Interwest, so it's not even really about buying insurance or selling a policy any longer. It's about how do we help our clients keep more money in their business by really building a dedicated risk management program that's sustainable over time. And everybody wins, right? The business wins. You guys win because you're not paying out insurance claims. Yeah, the, right? the carriers win. The business wins, especially because most businesses, no one wants to have their people get hurt or to have or to cause damage to the public. Right. Claims, claims have a direct cost, but they also have a huge indirect cost on a business from lost time and lost productivity or reputation. Uh, there's a lot of things that factor into it. And it's almost we can almost call it an inefficiency um, quotient because you can put a factor on there that starts to say if you're if you're efficient, you're, you're just your business is running so much better. And we're, we help people be more efficient through safety. So I heard you say something about slowing down. 
And I, that's really been resonating with me lately when I think about skiing, whether it's recreationally or ski guiding. And, and through talking to people over the last four years on this podcast, um, that's one of the biggest themes that comes up that, you know, whether it's somebody talking about a close call or an accident um, or somebody talking about their operating strategy, I often hear people talking about slowing down. And so what are some... What are some ways that you encourage businesses to do that in a in a risky environment, whether it's risky in a financial way or risky in a physical way? It's mostly going to be physical to get started. I'm going to go back to that actions, behavior, and consequences, ABCs, right? Our actions, you know, and, and the simple one is speeding. I'll use speeding as an example, right? The behavior is speeding, and almost everybody speeds, right? So you, So they can relate to it. And then the action is what causes you to speed? And for some people, it's uh, sunny outside, I'm late, I'm having a good time. But people will continue to speed until the consequence is so great that they don't. And usually the consequence is just a ticket. And, you, and if you ask a group of people, uh, and do you remember where you got your last speeding ticket? 95% will raise their hand and they'll remember it. And then if you ask them, was that enough of a consequence to make you stop speeding? And they'll, they'll almost always say no. But if someone says, hey, I got in a whole serious car wreck and I jacked up my back and you know now I'm, I'm messed up for the rest of my life, it has a stronger consequence to it, right? So when I go back to slowing down, you almost got to take a look at what are the actions that lead you to speed up or to get into this, you know, the habit side of your brain where you're just doing things on autopilot. And it's typically our emotions, right? And take skiing, for example, right? When things happen, you're you had a great run and you got this adrenaline going on such a great powder run. And so you just decide I'm going to venture out one field further than you probably should have been, or you decide to take a risk because you have these emotions going in yourself that, that make you minimize the risk and, and just think about the reward or the consequence and not being negative but being positive. And so there's some techniques, right? So from neuroscience right now and, you know, they've done all these things where they you know, put um, electrodes on your brain and they light you up. When you asking open-ended questions of your staff or of your people is a great way to get people to get back out of the emotion and get back into what they want to solve. And so what and how questions with deliberate actions is one of the techniques that we spend a lot of time working with people on. And how do you ask better questions to get people to slow down and think about what they really want? And if you can have someone in a situation be deliberate to ask those questions, you can start to scale back the speed and then have more deliberate part of your brain come forward to be a little more logical about the solution you want. I don't know if that's too long-winded of a way to say that, but there, there's ways to slow people down. And if you learn how to do them and, and you start to practice them, you can mitigate that pretty quickly. Yeah. One one thing that comes to mind with me when I'm, especially if I'm working in a team of, of other guides, um, is to just, you know, have a tactical pause and have a face to face. Cause oftentimes right. we don't even see each other's faces for, you know, a few hours until maybe we have lunch. And so every, all the communications on the radio. And I think when, when things, when we do need to create maybe a bigger margin of safety, a good way to slow down is just to group up and have a face-to-face conversation, right? And everybody gets on the same page a little bit more. 
Yeah, that's yeah. We call that one-on-one, right? Our our program is actually called Safety One-on-One on that premise of you want to be able to have a conversation where you can ask those questions and and get their feedback, right? The other part of it is, you know, how do adults learn, right? And adults learn when they're engaged in something that they know something about, it pertains to their job. And so if you're working with other guides or you're working with other people, if you just come and tell people what to do, there's a time when you have to tell people what to do Mm -hmm. depending on the situation. But if there's a better chance to be able to ask them, how would they solve this problem, right? It, It changes the brain from, flying on automatic mode to problem solving mode, which is a deliberate mode. And so if you can get conditioned into asking somebody, Hey, here's what I'm seeing. How would you fix it? Or what are you seeing? And how would you fix it? And let, and then just shut up and let them speak. You'll be amazed at how quickly you can slow down a situation and get some clarity on what's really going on. Right. But you gotta be a good listener too, right? It's a, when you're the leader or when you're in charge, and I would assume it's the same as a head guide and you have this responsibility that you feel like you got to get things done. There's a, there's a tendency to want to dictate and it takes a skill set to be able to step back and ask questions and listen and let people kind of work to a solution and, and then, and then pick one and go. Right. Okay. So this is a, this is great to have you on here, Chip, because, um, it's nice to get inside the mind of a ski guest, right? Somebody that, that I'm taking skiing. And so oftentimes um, there are, when you're guiding, there, you know, it's not appropriate to have the guests incorporated in the decision-making, right? We, we walk out of the morning meeting with pretty much a plan. Um, but talk a little bit about your experience as a guest in um, being involved in the decision-making process. Has that ever happened to you? Or are there times when you feel like you've been left in the dark and you're like, what is going on? And, and, or maybe you like that as a guest, you'd like to not have to think about the decision-making. I'm just trying to get in, in the head of a, of a ski guest. And, and how do you like, you know, you're, you know that you're participating in a, in a potentially risky, um, endeavor and, and, and how do you like being involved or not being involved in the decision-making process? That's a, that's a great question because if I were to think back about for myself and, and maybe what you hear around the table with other guests is when things are going well and the skiing is good or you, or you think there's another run we should go take or an area we should go to, you, you um, Everyone wants to go push that envelope or go do it. Or there's frustration, right? Like, why aren't we going over here? Or that was great. Why don't we go over here? And, and when you don't understand what's going on behind it, uh, then you start to grumble a little bit. But as a guest, I always figure, um, I, I know nothing that really goes on behind the scenes, right? And so I think especially at the Rubies, right, my experience has been, Anything that can be controlled, they control, right, as well as you can, as, as well as can be done. And, and you can't control the weather and you can't control some of the other stuff. So how do you make the best experience possible? We don't know. So I tend to feel like good communication from the, the provider allows you to accept it and move on. And while you may think there's another thing you could go do, I'm always trying to listen to hear what was the reason why we decided to make a decision we did. I don't don't ever feel like I need to be part of the decision-making process. I'm there to have this experience 
uh, based upon uh, the provider or the guides trying to keep us as safe as possible. Um, and I think I think you need to, as long as you keep re reminding guests of that, I don't think you have a problem. I think, you know, with skiing in particular, you have a lot of people that have access to do stuff and, and they want to do more than maybe they're capable of or what's available to go happen and they grumble about it. But as a guest, I don't need to be part of the decision-making process, but it's always nice to hear why a decision was made and why we're doing it. Yeah, I think that's often forgotten. Um, and I, I notice that in guiding context, um, whether it's skiing or alpine guiding, that that people just don't know why you're making a decision sometimes. And, and to simply um, let them into your decision-making process can be very helpful. Just not, not incorporating them necessarily, but involving them and making them aware of why you're making certain decisions. Yeah, and that point right there goes right back to this adult learning idea, right? That if you if you engage people and help them be part or, or feel like not maybe part of the finding the solution, but they're they're in the moment, they have a skill set that allows them to compare it against what you're telling them and an experience from their past that allows them to compare it against what you're telling them to rationalize. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, Caleb said we're going this way and here's why. Good. I'm on board. It, it can be that simple. And that's a much easier conversation to have than to just say, we're going over here with no explanation. You just take off walking. But it, it takes a, you know, it takes a personality to be able to stop and slow down. And that's an example of slowing down, which you just described. Mm hmm you're guiding or you're on your, on the Alpine stuff. How often I would think you probably are pretty good at that. Do you think most of your guides are good at that? I, I don't always see that that's the case. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it, I think you get burned a couple times, hopefully not in a big way, but maybe it's just in an interpersonal way and, and, and a guest leaves a little bit grumbly because they didn't really know what was going on or you didn't, you were really skookum on the weather that was coming in the next day um, and you're unable to maybe summit a mountain because of that, and and you just didn't you just didn't you utilize your communication to inform a guest that yeah like the weather's coming in it's not going to be safe to climb tomorrow you know but instead you didn't really say anything and you just woke up late and just kind of hiked down the mountain um, and so I, I, I've certainly seen that happen sometimes and I think you know as a guide you're there to facilitate and enhance the experience in any way you can. And, and I think to do that without paying attention to interpersonal communication, you're, you're kind of missing the point. So um, my approach is, is, tends to maybe be over-communicating, um, but that does allow me to slow down. I certainly don't have it all figured out, though, Chip. Learning every day out there for sure. No, no one does, right? It's it's an awareness of trying to keep working on it and just building habits that that becomes that you're doing it more often than you're not. And if you're doing that, then eventually it, you know, you win more than you lose, and and it, and it works in your favor, and they become they become your new habits. So, um, I think you know my experience, like at the Rubies, the guides have been great. You know, I've done other things where the guides haven't been as good, and and the guides make or break these trips. On I think anything you're doing, right? The, um, the interpersonal skills of the guides make or break for most outfitters, I would think. Mm -hmm. How has your risk tolerance changed throughout your life, Chip? 
Well, I think it's gotten narrower in some areas and expanded in others. I, th- I think as you have experiences, as you, you get older, you're able to have more experience to say, well, this makes sense and this doesn't. So, and then you're physically limited as you get a little bit older too. What things you would have done when you were younger, which I had a huge risk tolerance and didn't think a thing about it. Uh, now I want to do, and uh, if I relate that to skiing, I've learned enough over the years about potential snow hazards, even though I'm not very good at it, to know that I have no desire to go chase the freshest snow in the world. And I'd much rather uh, go ski on something that's marginal or crappy and know I don't have to worry about avalanche hazards as opposed to saying, hey, that looks great over there. Let's figure out a way to go bag it and get it done. My risk tolerance for taking a chance that could leave me or my family stranded out in the woods is pretty pretty small right now. I want to come home and I want to do stuff. And uh, I'm more enjoying being with people than trying to conquer the goals, per se. Mm. And how might you relate that to um, business strategy and, and risk management throughout your life? Are you, are you taking fewer risks say financially or or in a business sense than you used to as you not that you're old chip but as you age Uh, i would i would say that runs almost opposite because as you age you have more experience around some of the things and you start to realize what you can or cannot do and uh, like currently right now i think we're taking more calculated risks than we have in the past and understanding that you know you kind of have a revenue stream and you know what you're going to do and what opportunities we could try and go leverage and and be confident in what we're doing yet where else can we go and try and grow or do some other stuff and that's individually and you know I think what we're trying to do with our business so I would say on that side we're we're more calculated and we're slowing down but we're also taking risk but it's a major risk right and we kind of know um what to expect. And we have milestones along the way to check in on what we're doing. So I think they go, they go opposite. Maybe it does go with what you can do physically these days, Caleb. I don't know. You don't put yourself out. Uh, you know, mountain biking is a good example, right? We just had a good friend just completely destroy himself on his mountain bike. And, and as these bikes have gotten better and the parks or the, the downhills have gotten faster and the jumps have gotten bigger, at my age, I got to stay out. That that stuff, while it looks fun and it is fun, the, the margin of error is so short. I don't want to wipe out and break my clavicle or break my ribs and be hung out for six months. Right. So I'll keep riding the trails, but I don't need to go get into the whole downhill thing and the berms and launching the. I'm amazed at what's being built out there. I guess on mountain bikes, it's and yet and yet you see people have a huge risk tolerance for those things, mm. right on the. It's interesting how sometimes the curiosity of engaging in one of those activities is almost more intriguing than than the activity itself, right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a shiny lure effect to it, right? It's like well, that looks like fun. I could go do that, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad I've, I've chosen just to stay on the trails. I think right, and, and something to to maybe follow up, but to what you were saying about with, with age and experience comes wisdom and, and, and also maybe 
a, a better faith in, in control measures that you can put in place for a given activity, right? You've seen them work. You've seen them. So you've seen other control measures that might not work as well. And you can decide, um, you know, what's going to be the best course of action. And I think we go back to the slowing down thing. You still get the same emotions and excitement mm-hmm. that come uh, with with doing something or the opportunity to go do something fun. It's like now you have a little more experience to stop and ask yourself, "Hey, what do I really want out of this situation? Is it to is it to get to that peak or to ski that snowfield or is it to get home safely?" And and to check yourself when you, you start to recognize when your emotions are starting to drive your decision making, as opposed to slowing down and being deliberate. And I, and that's the same in the workplace with employees. Um, how do you, how do you get people to recognize when they're being driven by their emotions and as opposed to being deliberate? Um, and how do you check that? How do you- Because emotions drive everything, all the decisions that we make on all these, you know, all the habits that we have and the biases that we have being in touch with that and trying to, short circuit that process and know when to do it. That's a really good point. Just be able to kind of detach from those emotions, right? Yeah. Yeah. Recognize them. And, and there's a lot of work out there on that stuff, right? If you think about it, when, when do you know your emotions are taken over and it's whether it's fear or excitement, you know, you typically have some type of physiological reaction and whether it's speaking in front of people and you feel like you get all flushed or red or, you know, it's fear when you're stuck out someplace and you're like, what am I going to do? I mean, there's, there's emotions that, that physically you can feel. And it's like, when that happens, how do you know to use that as a cue to say, well, I got to stop. And and then what, what tricks can you use to stop that from moving forward and recalibrate? Mm. And, and is it, all that stuff is proven now, right? There's, there's science to beat the band on, on all those things happening. And it's now we got this awareness how do you take this stuff that is known and start to apply it into, in our case, into business or into other things that can start to drive outcomes you want to have happen? Right. Well, I think for me, like just speaking personally to that, I think I start to try to make decisions based on emotions if I'm not physically at my best. So if I'm hungry or if I'm tired, I can succumb to making or starting to make those decisions emotionally rather than a little bit more objectively. You're right. They're a great one. Uh, you know, what do they say about going to the grocery store? If you go to the grocery <laughs> store when you're hungry, what do you end up buying? Right. Just a bunch of you junk. Know, a bunch of crap as you would never buy and you get home and you're like, you know, after you ate the bag of potato chips on your way home and then once your blood sugar or whatever stabilized, you're like, what the hell did I just buy? You know, I just bought Captain Crunch and, uh, bunch of white bread and peanut butter you come out of your sugar stupor and you know, yeah, where am i I mean and, and there's so many things like that once you start paying attention to them and talking to people about them that helps them to relate and and to learn from it and then to start trying to apply it yeah well chip i appreciate you talking a bit about some of the parallels between you know risk management in the backcountry and in a skiing um experience to to some more corporate world and, and business world risk management techniques and it seems like there are quite a few parallels there yeah i think there's a bunch um i think there i think there's a bunch of parallels all over the place and in, in backcountry skiing and skiing in general but um yeah they they, they run 
they run parallel. And I think just people, if you get in touch with it and you start thinking about it and you can apply it, slow down, right? Slow down and try to get on your deliberate side of your brain whenever you can, when you're making decisions and good things tend to happen. Well, and I got to say, you know, like when, when you and Keith approached me to help support this podcast, which I really appreciate the support of Interwest Insurance. And, and I was kind of like taken aback and I didn't really know how to, at first I didn't know, I was like, well, this has nothing to do with skiing or snowboarding or snowmobiling and avalanches. Like, uh, I was like, how am I going to draw these parallels? And then I started thinking about it more and it's like, there, it, 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 it aligns almost perfectly. Right. They do. And, and, um, we're, we're, we're super glad to support the podcast, right? We, we want you to do more in terms of, uh, you know, get the message out, what you're doing. We love it. And um, we like skiing. We want more people skiing. Skiing's great, right? How do you get more people out there doing it? Yeah. How do you, how do you keep getting people out to enjoy it? You know, when, so, and the perils aren't just between, ski, you know, there's parallels and how people run their personal lives as well, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, there, they, there's so many parallels across the spectrum that if one, one of our passions is how do you get people to understand it and then apply it, and how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you use it going forward? And, and and I'll be honest, a lot of what kind of coalesced for us in building our philosophy has come from multiple people, but a big chunk has come from our experience at the Rubies mm-hmm. and watching watching the guides work, watching how that operation is ran, watching how, you know, really the smallest of details are, are, are being paid attention to. And, and while maybe a lot of people may not be paying attention to those things, it's, it's something that we would spend hours talking about on the drive coming back and then on the drive going out each time thinking about you know, how it's done and what are we looking at and what do we notice and, and how did that relate to our experience and how did that relate to um, the day that we had and our, and just a trip in general and, and little decisions that were made out in, out in, uh, on the mountain and looking back to see how that was the right decision at the time. Mm. So Chip, what are some ways that you all deal with things when things don't go as planned and an accident or unexpected event happens? What is the aftermath of processing that event? Do you have a bit to speak to that on? Well, I do. I do. And, and it's, and, and there's going to be parallels again, right? So you can say an event happens. And so whether you want to call it an accident, a workplace injury, um, a bad financial decision, but, but some event happens. And I would say most, do you have a, do you have a debrief procedure and a process that you feel right? So again, we're going back to the details. So do you have a process that says, Hey, X happened. What do we need to do? You know, and, and usually um, there's some there's some uh, risk management techniques and there's different ways to get back to what they call root cause analysis or there's a process called asking why five times it's called the five whys that came out of I believe it was Toyota manufacturing and trying to make sure their quality assurance and quality control is if something happened you'd ask the question why five times did something happen or wh- why ask why five times and then you get back to the root cause, but you you have to have a debrief process to go back and look at a, um, you know, what did happen? Why did it happen? What events were going on to lead to it to happen? And oftentimes you're going to find that what triggered it were poor decision-making driven by emotion. And we're now we're back on that same task again, right? 
And then what caused that emotion to be present? And then how do we prevent this thing from happening again? And really spending some time instead of just sweeping it under the rug, spending some time really trying to debrief on all of it, looking at it from different angles, getting other all the participants involved, a different perspective. Uh, one thing you have to recognize is what bias do we all bring to a situation based upon our experience? So an event happens and you tell me X happens. Well, I'm already going to start formulating why it happened based upon what I've had in prior experiences, yet I don't know whether that's true or not. And how do you leave your biases at the door when you come in to do a debrief to really make sure you're trying to get to what caused the problem and, and then finding a solution. And that's hard to do, especially in areas where you have a lot of egos and there's a lot of egos in businesses. There's a lot of egos out on the, you know, out on the slope with guides. And so how do you, how do you get people to check their egos? And that's a big part of that debrief process. Do you have any uh, uh, suggestions on how to do that? How to level the playing field in a debrief? You got to ask those things up front. What biases are you bringing to this? What do you think happened? What biases are you bringing? And that's a hard thing to do because you got to spend some time getting people who don't want to admit that they have a bias. And, and if you can ask enough how and what and open into questions, you can usually get people to say what bias they're bringing to the table mm. and get people agree that we want to find the solution um, and it doesn't and, and just because you think you know what happened you're willing to go through the process of really discovering it versus just saying this is what happened and moving on and so often so often than not it's hard to get people you'll start to see people that are hard-headed or people that um, are so uh, emotionally strong that they feel like they're right and they don't want to listen to any other opinions and you may need to move them out of the group and say, listen, let us do a little thing and we'll come back and tell you what we found because they can um, sh curtail your, 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 your efforts. Mm -hmm. And that may be of a business, right? That may very well be the owner of the business. And you're like, Hey, you're, you're not helping the situation here and having the courage to stand up and say that if you flip it back to you guys that are experts out in the woods and most of the people that you, you work with, you know, or that that's in your peer group and whether it's, it, um, do you find that you guys have some biases or that you have some preconceived notions on things that you do that drives what you do? Or, or is there one thing that drives, like, is it, is it client safety that drives your decision-making process? Is it delivering an experience? Is it a combination of all the above? And, and then who modeled that to you? And how do you model it to others to keep spreading that that type of format out into the backcountry so things are always being you're trying to get things as safe as possible? Um, you, you know, I, I watch guides, for example, with our common experience at the Rubies. Some people have better personal skills and do well. Other ones, you know, uh, they're great out in the woods, but boy, they can't talk to a person. And we see the same thing in our corporate world, right? You you come across people that are superior one aspect of their work life but you know this emotional stuff or trying to get them to do something else you can't get them to change at all how do you how do you where do you see your in the spheres you run in trying to uh see yourself as a teacher as a learner as a um, promoter of a not an agenda but of a philosophy yeah that's a that's a great question chip and i i've been giving that some thought lately certainly won't be able to give a very succinct answer here, but that's okay because it's my podcast. Uh, <laughs> Damn straight. It's, it's, it's not, 
it's your avalanche hour. Uh, so I, I think some things that I've been thinking about lately are um, waking up and think and asking myself the question, what, how is somebody going to get hurt today? What is the greatest risk? And maybe it's just a slip and fall. Maybe it's some rock fall. Maybe it's ice fall. Maybe it's avalanche hazard. Whatever it is for the given day, I try and um, prioritize what is the the most the greatest probability of hurting or killing somebody, right? And then I think about what measures I can put in place, right? And and so I've been finding, and and this is relatively a new way of thinking for me, but I've been finding if I can take care of that kind of baseline objective hazard that is always inherent in that environment, then I can drill down into the bigger details. Okay, so like how is Chip doing today, yesterday, you know, for climbing a mountain? Yesterday Chip seemed like he was lagging a little bit. Like I need to check in with Chip on hydration and nutrition and make sure like I can take care of that baseline stuff. All that stuff is really easy to take care of. It's the givens, right? It's nothing that's coming out of left field. And so then I can sort of think about, okay, what what am I missing here, right? What is the hazard that's going to come out of left field that is in my periphery or just out of my periphery? Like, what am I missing? And I think that's a really good thing to talk to your co-guides about, right? Like what, what, I, I think always, whether you're rec- not just guiding, if you're just recreationally skiing with a group of friends or trusted partners, I think the question of what are we missing is something that can really help bring us back into that objective decision-making process. Um, and so my, what, how do I see my role as a guide? You know, it's a, it's a risk manager. It's a enhancer of the experience, right? Like second to safety, like people are on vacation. They need to be having fun. Even if it's like type two fun, climbing a mountain, that is physically demanding, you know, like mountain climbing and heli skiing are very different experiences, right? But like, like close, a close second to safety is the experience, right? That's what we are doing. And then third is, is, you know, um, I guess objectives, you know, skiing good powder, skiing fresh lines, or, or getting to the top. So by prioritizing, you know, what we're trying to do out there, I think you can, um, a little bit easier, keep your eyes on the prize and, and be able to be aware of the things in, that are maybe just be out, just out of your periphery, right? Yeah. You know, I like, I like that in that uh, one of the things that we've been working on and, and a concept and, and, and I think it applies, I think you just said it maybe in a different way is when, when you get up in the morning, right, you're, um, there, there's a thing you know, we use a term called leading indicators, right? Leading and lagging. Lagging means the events already happened. You can't do anything to change the influence of the event, but you get you have something. And but leading indicators are what are those things that if you focus on and you move them, they're influential and they're predictive, right? Like so, for example, if you set on your on your mountain guide climbing, my leading indicator might be that every morning when we wake up, I do a review with each person on how well they performed the day before to gauge how well they're going to do today. And then after I do that is when I make a decision on what we're going to attempt to do that day. And yet oftentimes it's that first step, that leading step that if you did that consistently every day, you would, you would have a better outcome 
people skip that because it's they don't think it's important or it doesn't matter, right? How do you identify what are those one, two, three things that if you if you did them well all the time, they have a direct influence and are predictable on what the outcome is going to be. And, and if you can identify those leading indicators in whatever you're doing, it allows you to, to get an out, a more predictable outcome as well as a much safer outcome. And, and uh, I challenge you to think about those things and, and think about them in those terms as you're doing, because you're right, guiding on Shasta versus out in the backcountry, they're two completely different things to worry about. Right. And uh, yeah, what, are, what would be the thing that you got to pay most one or two leading indicators for each one that if you did them well every day, you know, it starts to really influence what, what the outcome is going to be. Well, it, it's a bit like putting the cart before the horse, right? Like, shouldn't we be checking in on our people and seeing how they're how they're doing before we identify what goal is appropriate for the day? Yeah. 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 But if you but if you think you probably do it on the mountains, we never do it on at the ski hill. Right. Yeah, it's it's a little bit it's a different environment for sure. Well, di- different, but but maybe not, right? We never check in with our guests on a on a formal basis. It's always informal around the table or something like, "Hey, I all my legs are sore," whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, does anyone have any physical ailments that would keep you from performing out there today, right? Or my back's or what? Hey, you know, I don't know. They they are different, but but I, I, I guess my point is there are. If you can change your thinking to look for those leading things that really have an influence on what you're trying to do and then consistently do them, mm-hmm. we call that performing support, right? And that's what a checklist is, right? If you think about before that helicopter ever flies in the morning, what are the leading things that that pilot does before that no one even knows about? But every morning, you know, the pilot's a great example because they don't they don't make a skip, right? But every morning um, they check something before that, that air, aircraft flies, Sure. The baseline. Yeah. yeah. Or a good leading indicator would be that uh, every guest gets the orientation of the helicopter before getting in it, which is, that we take as a given, but maybe the piece of that is don't kick the pilot's seat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that's reinforced to the point where, you know, I don't think anyone makes that mistake. Or if you do, you, you know, they're, they're like, Oh my God, I just kicked that guy's seat. Right. That's All why, right, so. that's why you sit on the left side. That, that is why I sit on the left side. I want no part of being blamed for that. <laughs> and, yeah. So anyway, I, I, I don't know. That's, uh, there's, it goes back to there's parallels, right? There's just so many parallels between life in general and, and mitigating risk. And then what we're finding is it comes down to being able to, can you control your emotions and, and work on your deliberate side of your brain more often than not? And if you can, you can have a lot of predictable outcomes in whatever you're doing. Or at least be aware of that. That's a good yeah. first step, right? Be aware, gaining awareness, self-awareness. And it starts with, you know, what, what actions cause some physiological things in you. And then that's when you know you're in your emotions yeah. and then stop. Well, Chip, thanks so much for taking the time today to, to chat with us and draw some parallels between what you do professionally and, and what you like to do recreationally. Um, definitely appreciate it. And I can't wait to get back out there and, and ski some ski some lines with you this winter us too we're looking forward to it so thanks for having me and it's it's fun and thanks for calling me out on it. it's great to be here and keep doing what you're doing all right appreciate it appreciate all the support you guys give us you're very welcome our pleasure okay kale catch you later all right see you all right talk to you
Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that conversation. I know I did. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend about it. Tell your friend to tell a friend. Let's grow this thing. Come on, let's do it right now. Right now, let's do it. If you have any feedback for the podcast, you can email us at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, give us a follow on the socials. We're on Facebook and Instagram, reluctantly. And you can find us at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you want to go the extra mile, go, go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. Actually, type the letters cre- to create the words of the thoughts you have about the podcast and share it with the world. Big thanks to the supporters of this podcast, MND Safety, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. Couldn't do it without you guys. Our artwork, of course, was created by the man himself, Mike T. For any of your illustration or graphic design needs, you need to get in touch with T. Go to www.miket.com, M-I-K-E-T-E-A. Our musical tracks today were performed by Ketza with Dusty Hills in the beginning and Funky Fortune taking us out of the hour. These tracks made possible through the permission of the artist. Make sure to tune in next week on December 15th when we sit down with Dave Richards from Alta, Utah. Better known as Grom, Dave runs the Avalanche Mitigation Department over at Alta, um, and we have a great conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. So until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Don't forget to submit your OBS to your local Avalanche Center. Cheers.